space, the final frontier. Specimen gathering mission on planet Alpha 177. Mr. Spock is much stronger than the ordinary human being. Aroused, his great physical strength could kill, but it's a risk I'll have to take. Something bothering you, Mr. Spock? End of days. The freedom of speech is being taken away. And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I am a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now on the TuneIn radio app. Search End of Days and you'll find the 24-7 network. Go to michaeldeacon.com for your preferred choice of platform to hear the podcast rendition of this program. Joining me today is Dr. Colin Roth. He is an internationally renowned clinician, researcher, author, and lecturer in the field of dissociation and trauma-related disorders. He, of course, is the founder and president of the Colin A. Roth Institute for Psychological Trauma. Dr. Roth has authored over 170 professional papers, has reviewed for numerous professional journals, once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again, not on a night like this. This is the morning edition of this program here. Hello. Kind of odd to be here in the morning hours for most out there listening. I know this isn't the regular time we do this sort of thing. Of course, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Always good to have so many of you out there listening live. Feels good to be here. I feel the positive vibrations here this morning. I'm feeling quite nice. Of course, the doctor is waiting. Let's get right to it with him. Let's not make him wait any longer. Doctor, are you there? Yes, I am. Oh, I'm glad you're there. What's going on? Not much. Just waiting to see what you would like to talk about. Oh, there's so much to get into here. But before we get into any of this, let's... Let's go back in time and go into your roots here, sir. Okay. Give us a little context of your background here. Well, I was born on planet Earth and nice. uh, <laughs> a particular region called Canada. I grew up there. I went to medical school in Edmonton, did my psychiatry training in uh, Winnipeg. And then in 1991, I moved to Dallas, where I've been based ever since. And I uh, consult to run... Uh, hospital-based trauma programs in Grand Rapids, Michigan, here in the Dallas area, and in California. And I do uh, lots of writing and speaking. I've uh, over 200 papers in professional journals, 29 books. I've talked in lots of different places. So one of my areas is psychiatry with a focus on psychological trauma and all its effects. And then I've got several other areas of interest. Uh, one is energy fields. 
and I have a book called Human Energy Fields. I have a patent in that area, and I'm just resurrected developing some technology in that area. And then I have uh, literary writing, uh, filmmaking interests. I do quite a bit of literary writing. And then my other area that I'm putting quite a lot of energy into is treating cancer with pancreatic enzymes and then just enjoying life and doing stuff. Very nice. I was curious to see exactly what you could tell us about the Ross Institute first. Well, it's a, a professional association, a company that I created in 95. It's really a virtual reality entity. Oh, I see. So mm-hmm. it's um, like I have just a normal office space in the Dallas area. And the Ross Institute has several main functions. One is it's an educational website. It's a www.rossinst.com which is short for Ross Institute. So you can get information about the three hospital programs and how to contact them, uh, information about trauma. All my medical and scientific papers are listed there, and there's a button for my bookstore. So the, the mandate of the Institute is basically public education, providing consultation and treatment, and doing research. And the Ross Institute contracts with the hospital corporation to manage these hospital programs. Yeah, and you've been doing this for uh, many, many years now. Yeah, I finished uh, my medical school training in 1981, and I actually diagnosed my first case of multiple personality disorder as a medical student in 1979, which I ended up publishing in 1984. And then I had uh, you know, all kinds of different experiences in my psychiatry training from 81 to 85, and I've been practicing as a psychiatrist since 1985. Very nice, yes. I've looked into your background and uh, extensive background and all, all these, um, all these subjects. You have uh, quite the wealth of knowledge in all these subjects here that we're going to talk about. And you mentioned the whole multiple personality uh, disorder and you also talk a lot about schizophrenia. And I'm curious, here on this program, I talk to a lot of different individuals out there who claim to have been abducted by some sort of entity. I I was hoping we could sort of get into that momentarily here and talk about that sort of thing. Sure. Are, Are these people actually being abducted or what's really happening? Is there some sort of false memory being placed here? What's your opinion, doctor? Well, uh, there's kind of two groups of people that I'm aware of, people who have alien abduction experiences, who I don't see myself in person very often, like quite rarely, and then people who are identified online as targeted individuals, which is basically they believe that Mm -hmm. they're under some sort of uh, high-tech surveillance and being harassed with electromagnetic uh, weapons from satellites or vans or wherever they might originate. And I get quite a lot of uh, emails, phone messages, uh, some letters from targeted individuals. So concerning both groups, I would say, first of all, I don't have the answers. And I don't think any one answer applies to the whole group. Yes, so I, I agree. I'm, so on the target individual side of things, uh, we know that these kind of weapons exist, these electromagnetic weapons you can easily Google them and see websites about them. Yeah. Uh, military has been testing them. I have articles from 
um, Defense Electronics, which is a magazine, and U.S. News and World Report, you know, mainstream credible media outlets that describe electromagnetic weapons that have been tested uh, going back into MK Ultra era in the 50s and 60s. And we know that the CIA and the military have long histories of testing chemical weapons, biological weapons, doing radiation experiments on unwitting civilians. So to me, it just seems quite unlikely that electromagnetic weapons have never been tested on unwitting civilians. So it's, to me, perfectly realistic in between a possibility and a probability that this has happened to some people. And so some people are probably just describing experiences that they're actually having. Problem being, it's totally impossible to prove. Right. There's this huge boggle factor, and most people are just going to think that you're mentally ill. <laughs> yes. And then I get contacted by other people who obviously, I mean, their thought processes are really jumbled up and are obviously highly mentally disturbed, uh, delusional. That doesn't prove schizophrenic, none perhaps. of it's real. But you certainly are going to be leaning towards this is probably more mental illness delusional. But on the other hand, mentally ill, delusional people could have real experiences, and those experiences could drive you to mental illness. So it's very, very, very difficult to try and sort out which person is telling a real story and which person is telling a delusional story. You basically just can't tell. Right. And the same with alien abductions. So, I mean, we know that there's all kinds of experimental aircraft being developed all the time that right. are being flown around in the atmosphere and being tested that are will still be classified for at least 10 or 20 years. So seeing a UFO, I mean, we know that there are UFOs. It's just an objective fact. The question is, what are they? And then it becomes basically just a political battle of personal beliefs. Do you believe that alien biological beings inside physical aircraft are flying around in our atmosphere or not? You can't exactly prove it. Right. And you can't exactly disprove it. So it just becomes, you know, each side insults the other side and, but uh, there's a book called The Disclosure Project that I've read, which is a very interesting book. And I've read you know, Whitley Stryber and other kinds of books. Um, the Disclosure Project is an ER physician who's done a lot of research and interviewing. And it describes typical scenarios where the uh, observers who are reporting are Air Force pilots, uh, people on the ground in the military, civilians on the ground, air traffic control people. And so you have a sighting, a visual sighting from a pilot in the air, visual sighting from the ground, uh, air traffic control confirmation, and maneuvers like the craft is at 2,000 feet and three seconds later it's at 40,000 feet, or making right angle turns at high velocity. So really, like a just truly independent, skeptical, but not dismissive person is going to be saying it's got to be something flying around. You, you definitely have an interest in UFOs, correct? I just think it's an interesting topic. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. I, I have never been abducted myself or anything, but you, you never seen any flights in the sky yourself. No, nothing no. of that nature. Okay. I've talked to people though who uh, have had UFOs flying along beside them in their private airplanes. No. Okay. W what about? In terms of the paranormal, that's also another subject that's discussed here. Um, right. Anything of that nature happened to you when you were growing up? Uh, yes and no, which I'll get to in a second. Okay. Uh, so, but it's the same basic mm -hmm. overview. So, right. I personally am, I personally believe in the paranormal. Um, 
But I also think there's a lot of people who are mistaken, have mistaken impressions, are misinterpreting things, have sort of magical beliefs, and sometimes people are just psychotic delusional. So again, it's very hard to sort claims into categories. But what I've noticed in my research, which I've published in mainstream journals, mm-hmm. is there's clearly a relationship between having lots of dissociative symptoms, amnesia, out-of-body experiences, hearing voices, etc., and having paranormal experiences. Paranormal experiences meaning the classical things, mental telepathy, uh, seeing the future in dreams, right. reading other people's minds, more rare moving objects with your mind, and then also contact with ghosts, polter, uh, poltergeists, and so on. So having those kinds of experiences is statistically linked with having dissociative symptoms, which is in turn linked to having traumatic childhoods. So the the sort of puzzle in in my own research that I've published is when you treat people with dissociative disorders and their depression goes down, their anxiety goes down, their dissociative symptoms go down, they're doing well, their level of paranormal experiences goes down too. Mm. So then you could say, well, that just means it's a mental health symptom, right? Right. But my personal model is uh, my approach is not to believe or disbelieve or to both believe and disbelieve. It's sort of have a meta position which is have an open mind. So nice. my basic model is nice. yes. in our culture, we know for a fact that people all around the globe going back for thousands of years have had these kind of experiences. So it's a very common type of experience. In one of my papers where I uh, did a survey in Canada, I had a table with my own results and results from a Gallup poll, which was a mainstream Gallup poll on paranormal experiences. And a sample of people in the United States, 2% had channeled, they said, 2% had channeled another entity through themselves while in a trance state. And around, I forget the exact number, but like 15, 16% had seen a ghost. So these experiences are quite common and can't all be dismissed as mental illness. So what I think is it's clear that these experiences are common all around the world. And in our culture, they're clearly suppressed by social pressure through development. And so then my model is that when you have lots and lots of childhood trauma and your psyche fragments into bits and pieces, it's sort of like there's cracks or fissures in your psyche. And that suppression barrier, which normally suppresses all those experiences, has cracks and fissures in it. So up come those kind of experiences. Then when you kind of seal that over again, those kind of experiences get resuppressed, which could be true whether they're illusory or whether they're real. That's, that's my overview. Understood. Then yeah. We could talk about my personal stuff. Fair enough. Bit, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Let's get into that. Okay. So, um, I haven't moved objects with my mind. I'm sad to say. <laughs> I haven't levitated. It would be extremely cool to figure out how to levitate. Parapsychology um, is very fascinating. There are some aspects that are, I, I guess you could say, um, they definitely can manifest in, in your life. Definitely. Yeah, yeah there's no doubt people have these kind of experiences. Mm-hmm. Like phone so, telepathy, by the way, that's a real thing. Right. Yeah, there's all kinds of mm-hmm. variations on the theme. So the kind of way I've gone in is through my own personal experience. So um, when I was a teenager, so what I'm going to talk about now, the human eye beam, which is sending energy up through your eyes, which is completely dismissed by regular conventional science. Nothing comes out of your eyes. It's all just superstition. Ah, uh, yes. You know, I think I had read an article about that. I think somebody was, was, um, uh, well, 
they were kind of trashing you a little bit. I'll just be blunt about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, not a little bit. It was totally. Yes, <laughs> yes. Then you're well aware. I, I believe even they mentioned James Randi along right. uh, your name as well. Let's yeah, talk about all this. You you definitely you definitely get out there, Doctor. A lot of yeah, people know who you are. Um, so I like things. I'd be happy if it wasn't controversial. I don't particularly like being trashed. But I like things no one that does. Are out, yes. out on the edge, interesting, creative, speculative, challenging, not just you know walking down the middle of the mainstream of the pipeline sort of thing. Um, so when I was 16, 17, I had an experience or two. One was, uh, so I lived in London as a teenager, and I was walking into the northwest corner of Hyde Park, and all of a sudden I saw a, a kind of cone of white light coming out of my eyes, and... About 20 feet away on the ground, it was probably about, oh, in between 15 and 20 inches in diameter. And I could see as I lifted my eyes up, I could see it move along the ground and move up. And then after about 20, 30 seconds, it just kind of evaporated. So I thought, huh, filed that. And then a few other times I had a common experience, which is you feel somebody staring at you. You turn around, you look at them, mm-hmm. and they're staring right at you. Yep. And then I had this particular experience like very precisely a couple of times. Like one was I remember, uh, which I've written about in some of my books, I was on a bus in Rome. And this will tie into evil eye belief in a minute. So I was on a bus in Rome and I felt a, a centimeter roughly circle on my right cheek in a very specific location, which was like some sort of ray was being shone at it. Not painful, just kind of a sensation. And I looked straight out the window, straight out a woman walking on the street who was looking directly at me, and we shared this look of recognition, and the bus carried on. And then another type of experience I had was I was out, uh, I did lots of hunting of grouse, and a northern kind of grouse called a ptarmigan up in the Arctic. And I was in um, southeastern Manitoba in Canada, hunting in the woods in the fall. And I remember just kind of pausing and going, oh, I can feel a rabbit looking at me. And I could actually, on my back from behind, I could actually sense, oh, this is like rabbit-like energy. I turned around, there's the rabbit, shot it, ate it for dinner. <laughs> so I had a number of these kind of experiences. And then what are you, what are you going to do with that? Where are you going to go? Yeah. So um, I thought to myself, okay, this is definitely real. So I personally had no doubt. But how do you prove that? Well, I thought, okay, there must be some sort of energy coming out of the eye of the person or my eyes or the rabbit or any kind of animal. I thought about it a bit. I couldn't come up with any idea as to what kind of energy that was. But then I thought, well, maybe it could just be regular brain waves, just regular electromagnetic energy. So when I was in pre-med, I had a um, professor who was a biomedical engineer, and I actually got a photomultiplier, which senses photons, light energy, and got in a dark room and stared into it and tried to see if I could capture any of this energy coming out of my eye. No luck. And then I'm in medical school and I get busy. And I finally I got back to it in the 2000s. And by thinking more about it, I decided to lock into this idea that, okay, this is not some mystical energy that we've never heard of before. This is your brain waves, which we know you can sense on your skin because that's how we do it, EEG. We know electrical energy comes out of your heart because you yes. do an EKG. And then in physics, we know that every physical object in the universe generates an electromagnetic field. So this is 
basic science. And uh, by a little reading, I found out that extra low frequency, which is like 0 to 40 hertz, which is what we measure with EEGs and brain waves, extra low frequency energy propagates out into the world a very long distance without dropping off in intensity. And so then I thought, okay, so it's actually possible that brain waves come out through your eye because they're coming out through your skull all over. They must come out through your eye. Right. And maybe they're a little stronger because they don't have to make it through your skull. Maybe there's kind of a focusing effect just from the geometry of your skull. And maybe there's a conscious intention effect. So maybe the beam coming out through your eyes is a little stronger than the general field coming out through your skull. And then I thought, oh, okay, well, if that's true, then we ought to be able to construct an electrode to measure this. And then I did some reading. Lo and behold, there's um, engineers in England who are taking an EKG from a meter away from the body. So these are called non-contact electrodes. So it's now it's just a basic science engineering fact that the electromagnetic field generated by your body, including your brain or your heart, propagates out into space, and we have electrodes that can pick it up without making any physical contact with your body. So this is now, quotes, the human aura brought into mainstream physics and science. And so basically through a series of steps, I've published some papers where there's an EEG, normal EEG set of leads on my skull, and I've got this special electrode that I developed that's sitting in front of my eye inside some goggles that are got tinfoil and electro, um, copper wire mesh so that it's electromagnetically insulated so you can get a clean signal. And you can see when you look at the printout that's published in an, an electro, electrical engineering journal, so it's a mainstream journal, you can see that the printout of the two leads that are actually contacting my forehead and the printout from the electrode that's in front of my eye but not touching my body is very, very, very similar, including when you I blink my eyes. That's called eye blink artifact. And mm-hmm. in the normal EG, you see this kind of spike, which is just from the muscle movement. Right. That also shows up to the same degree in the eye electrode. So I've basically proven to the satisfaction of an electrical engineering journal that you can pick up brain waves coming out of your eye. Yes, and you wrote about that in Human right. Energy Fields. Right. So now the patent is, this is now just an electrical engineering developmental problem. How to get the electrode to be sensitive enough, durable enough, cheap enough, and get the software developed so that you can pick up the signal, say, 8 or 10 feet away, or 6 inches or 2 feet, whatever distance you want. If you can set up the software and the electrode so that they can sense the difference in intensity between your stare, the eye beam coming out of your eye, and the general field coming out of your skull, this is now an on-off switch, exactly like a clapper light activated by sound. Mm. You could activate the electrode by staring at it, and you could turn any electrical device on, off, up, or down. So then there just could be millions of applications. And going over into anthropology then, so basically I've taken this woo-woo voodoo idea of you can feel somebody staring at you and turned it into mainstream science. And that's what I'm trying to do in this whole area of energy fields is marry Western scientific uh, medicine and science with Eastern mysticism, not, and not just Eastern, all around the world, human soul, spirit, life force, chi energy, all these different terms for it. I think those are our subjective, philosophical, religious, spiritual terms for the electromagnetic field, which is the same thing. 
So that's kind of the philosophy part of it. In, in um, anthropology, then, the idea is what we're talking about is predator-prey interactions. So if you have a gazelle a million years ago, 500,000 years ago, that could sense the stare of a predator right. before the predator attacked, and that's going to be a sense of unease, danger, it could be subliminal, and you just take off, then you're going to survive better than the gazelle that's not so good at that. Therefore, the genes for that are going to be selected. So over evolution, you're going to have a protective way of censoring, sensing the intent of the predator. Yeah, that's Oops. very interesting, by the way. I, I definitely it, do get that feeling when someone's staring at me. Right. Yeah. You, so then, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, coming, sorry. So coming back to Italy then, Italy is one of the cultures that's been very big historically on evil eye sickness. There's a whole set of beliefs about evil eye sickness. And in uh, Italy, not so much present day, but in the last hundred years at least, there are people called jettatori who can send evil energy out through their eyes and put a curse on you. Jettatori? Yeah, J-E-T-T-A-T-O-R-E. So they can like jet energy out of your eyes. Ah, I see. And so they're basically witches who can curse you. Yes. Some people are just born with that skill and some practice and develop it. And the symptoms of evil eye sickness are feeling of unease, danger, gastrointestinal upset, fear, impending doom, and then falling over dead. But these are exactly the symptoms that you would expect the prey to feel when it's being stared at with hostile intent. So what we have, according to my model, is a real physiology, real electromagnetic field interaction with a whole lot of piles of superstition cloaked around it. But instead of throwing the whole thing out, we should go, okay, well, of course, people are a little superstitious. They don't always think clearly. They tell stories to each other. You get urban legends. But at the core of it, We've got this physiological reality that we now have can develop technology for and actually test and measure. So you could develop an electromagnetic gun. First of all, you study the frequency, the amplitude, the characteristics of the energy coming up through your eyes, which I've already started to do. It's not easy technology if you're an electrical engineer mm-hmm. to develop a gun that emits the same electromagnetic signal, except you can crank the intensity way up. So if you crank the intensity up high enough, you'll burn a hole in the person's skin. But if you turn it down, you won't injure the person, but everybody will be able to go, oh, yeah, I feel that. And then there's going to be a threshold there where you only can feel it sometimes if you're really concentrating and it's kind of hit and miss. And then if you turn it down far enough, nobody will feel anything. And then there's going to be some people who are much better at picking that up and some people are not so good. So then you can actually uh, you know, scientifically measure what is the signal What's the threshold for picking it up? And can you practice, train, increase your ability to sense that? And then the other question becomes, how much has our ability to sense all this stuff been suppressed by social cultural pressure? And how much has it been swamped out by this sea of electromagnetic noise that we live in now? Right. And, you know, I'm glad that you said that because I was curious to ask your opinion on this. And I was going to say, our computers and electronics let's let's use wi-fi signals for an example um do you think those things are affecting our human energy field in some sort of way that we have no uh, real knowledge yet for uh quick answer yes but there's really no possibility that that's not the case because 
first of all, we know from phones, you can walk around everywhere and everybody can answer their phone everywhere and everybody can call from everywhere. Right. So there's, and there's radio, TV, before we even get the electric wires. So there's digitized signals carrying information that can be decoded everywhere in our atmosphere. Point number one. Point number two is these signals interact with your phone. You can't really dispute that, right? No. Mm-hmm. So they interact with everything. So there's like a 60 hertz background hum that you can pick up by measuring it in your body. It's from electrical current that's all in your house. So these things are all just facts. So it is a scientific 100% certainty that these external electromagnetic fields are interacting with the electron clouds of the atoms in our body. Correct. Question is, does it make any difference? Is it a significant form of pollution or is it just stuff in the background that's not causing any harm? But that the phenomena happens, 100% guaranteed fact. And so then this becomes an area for research, not just believing, disbelieving, trash talks and insulting back and forth. Right. And I I believe that, well, we know if it's a strong enough field, like if you are exposed to huge doses of radiation, it kills you. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. And we know from general medicine, if you expose a whole population to, say, a very low level of lead or mercury, a lot of people are not going to get sick, but some people are going to get sick because they're more sensitive. So it would be the same thing here. Maybe most people don't get sick, but some susceptible people do. Yes. And this becomes now something we have to study. How does it work? And so I personally believe that human beings are like biological cell phones. And we've been sending and receiving electromagnetic signals from our environment, from trees, from rocks, from lakes, from animals, from each other. And this is actually digitized information that has survival value. So when you say, I feel bad energy, or I don't like his energy or her energy, or I do like it, maybe this is not just impressions. Maybe your body's actually picking up signals, analyzing them, and sending it up to your brain where it becomes a perception or a feeling. Right, right. So this opens up this whole study of, uh, it's actually a new area of science where you could get in there and have meters and gauges and study this. Yeah, that's extremely fascinating. Yeah. And so then all these mystical ideas about being in tune with nature or feeling, you know, the power spot of in the sacred area, oh, we can measure all that. What's the the electromagnetic field state of this person when they're in the city? We take them to Sedona, do a bunch of meditation, communing, sitting on rocks for a week. We measure the field, electromagnetic field coming out of the rock, and we see has the field of the human being synchronized to some degree with the field of the rocks. So you've actually literally, at electromagnetic level, been out of touch with nature, and you got back in touch. Yeah. you got to have that balance. Yeah. Very important. And we're, we're massively out of balance because we're Truly, yes. so electromagnetically disconnected from the, the main field of the earth. So I think we're literally spiritually empty and out of touch with the earth mother. Yes, Mother Gaia. Right. I'm going to have to agree with you on, on a lot of these things you're saying. And going back to these sonic weapons, that reminds me of the long-range acoustic device that you see the police use all the time, different law enforcement and government defense agencies. They um, are able to use these sonic weapons to disperse uh, large crowds. And, of course, if you've right. ever – I'm not sure if you've ever experienced any of those – 
any of those kinds of devices yourself, but they're extremely annoying. You, you could actually hear it for yourself on, I, I guess, YouTube. You could look that up. And um, these frequencies are known to cause um, some of those symptoms that you're referring to. Yeah, and this is, again, not conspiracy theory. This oh, not is at all. The police use this. Objectively existing yeah. factual technology, no question. Yeah. It's kind of like the whole thing about chemtrails and contrails. Uh, so chemtrails are, quotes, conspiracy theory. Contrails are that normal white stream behind a high-flying jet, which lasts for like 30, 60, maybe 90 seconds. They're quite narrow, and they just dissipate. Chemtrails, which actually exist in the sky, and you can see them, uh, have several characteristics. They persist for a long period of time, and they spread out and become quite broad. And you often, like just here in Dallas, you can look up and see these. They're often in like X and O style grids or an anarchy sign like a um, an A. So they're clearly not the same as normal contrails. The theory is that this is weapons that are being tested by the military for climate control. Well, do I know for a fact that's true? Not 100%, but you can go online, search this, and see photographs of uh, military aircraft with all these drums inside, with you know exhaust jets on the outside. You can read testimony from military people who've uh, loaded the equipment and been told not to talk about it. And we know this technology exists because that's what climate control is: cloud seeding. This is cloud seeding. Yeah, cloud no- seeding is a real thing that you can hire as a civilian. You can hire people to do right. that. I had no idea you had an interest in uh, geoengineering. Well, it all ties into the geomagnetic field and uh, health yes. of the planet. And That's true. That's very true. You, everything's you, connected to everything, sort of. You, you heard of the whole chemtrail cough, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it, I think it's real. I mean, I, I live out here in an area where they're constantly, um, you, you, they're constantly spraying, in my opinion. And also, there's all these crop dusters out here too. Right. Lots of agriculture out here where I'm at. And, uh, you know, I see these things out there, or out here in the sky, spraying, and I'm just wondering, what exactly is this doing to our bodies and our planet? And, no kidding. Uh, yeah, all, those, all the bacteria out there being spread around, it's just, it's terrible, really, and it definitely is affecting our weather, and this is a, a global problem, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And so, instead of just, you know, the authorities shut it down and... Everybody gets labeled as a conspiracy nut, and then we have mainstream science that ignores it and says they're all conspiracy nuts. We actually have the technology where we actually could study and investigate all this and find out. Of course, there's a little problem with it all being classified, but we could find out how much is going on, what are the specs of the electromagnetic weapons, or what what are the particulates that are being dropped into the atmosphere? Is it heavy metals? What is it? Aluminum, et cetera. What are the health effects? What's the effect on the individual? What's the effect on the population as a whole? It's just normal public health medicine. Yeah, it truly is. It truly is. And going back to what we were talking about earlier about mind control and MK Ultra, that that's mm-hmm. always an interesting topic of discussion. But I I do want to get into that quickly here, and I've. I've kind of gone over this before, and I've said that 75% to 85% of the American public are perfectly brainwashed without realization. And the the moment you turn on that television screen, you're already being pre-programmed right from the the jump. Right. Yep, you're told what to like, what to dislike, 
who to cheer for, who to boo, etc., etc. And all of this, of course, we, we first saw all of this go down in, of course, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Even to modern day, we, we still see lots of different forms of brainwashing. And, of course, this all started way back in Germany where it first got its original ties, thanks to Dr. Joseph Mengele. Right. So there's basically human beings trying to covertly enter influence other human beings probably goes back to the Neanderthals, right? Yeah. So there's nothing new here, just that now we've got all this technology, all this surveillance Mm -hmm. ability, internet, etc. Advertising is a multi, multi multi-billion dollar industry. I doubt that all this money is being spent because it doesn't influence people's behavior, right? Exactly. So, I mean, it's just a fact that people uh, think, oh, I like this. But 40 years ago, they liked a totally different hairstyle, totally different type of music, totally different clothes. And now they think those 70 clothes are really stupid and nobody's wearing flared pants. So obviously, our personal tastes and what we think that we spontaneously like changes decade by decade by decade based on our culture, which is not 100%, but quite a bit driven by advertising and industry. I mean, that's just a fact. You yeah, can't there's really a, deny that. There's a lot of influence there, and also through social media is a great way to sway someone's opinion on a matter that they hold dear to themselves. We, right. we see it all the time, don't we? Yeah. Well, Constantly. And so, again, I'm just saying this is the way it's always been. Now we just we have all this technology to do it on a bigger, faster scale. Right. It's gone way more advanced. And, you know, that brings us to what's going on now here in this current day and age with the new president, we, we've seen how people have been reacting towards him. And, of course, you have your book about this whole thing. It's called The Trump Card, correct? Yeah, it's a political satire. Uh, I, so I wrote a book called The Great Psychiatry Scam, which is a political satire attack on psychiatry combined with an autobiography. So this one's a political satire, no autobiography. And it's called The Trump Card, subtitle, a psychiatrist analyzes reactions to Donald Trump. And it's got a really cool cover. Uh, and so the the idea here is there's the Rorschach inkblot test, which is that psychological test with those mm-hmm. sort of black and white bat-like looking sort of not exactly drawings. They look like inkblots. That's why they're called that. I've taken that and, test, by the way. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> an interesting test. And so oh, yeah. the psychologist shows you a series of these cards and you say, oh, I see this, I see that, and you know, if you say, I see a bat, the psychologist goes, well, there's a normal guy. And if you say, I think I see my father hacking my mother to death with a double-bladed axe, the psychologist goes, oh, some trouble here. Good board. <laughs> so that's the idea of the test. So I've added another card to the Rorschach inkblot test, which is the Trump card. And I'm looking at projections of people onto the Trump card. So it's not about Trump himself. Of course, yes. Uh, it's about all these Incredibly polarized, far right, far left reactions, counter reactions, basically drive by shootings at a verbal level that go on in our culture all the time, all the fake news media distortion element of it, and the huge drop in standards of logic, scholarship, debate, commentary, and journalism that have happened in our culture in the last hundred years. So that what passes as a debate now is just basically a series of Emotional reactions and emotional counter reactions with not much politeness and not much civility. So that's kind of the basic idea of that book. Yeah. Very interesting book. What, what have you learned so far about this, this experiment you've done? 
Uh, well, it's only been published for a little while and haven't really had much reaction to it yet. Oh, no? But No. Um, I, I was dismayed to find out after the book was just about to come out, I got on Amazon and looked at books about Donald Trump. There's literally hundreds of them. Oh, yeah. There's got to be. So it's a totally saturated market. Um, but I'm glad I wrote it and, you know, I said my piece. And so an example I used in the book was, so is there fake news? Well, I, d- I divide fake news into a bunch of subcategories. So fake news isn't just you deliberately produce something that you know is a false lie for propaganda purposes. Right. That's one kind of fake news. Mm-hmm. But there's, I sort of broaden the category to include all kinds of distortion. You can report something accurately that somebody said, but what somebody's saying is fake. So an example of that is, so the media reported accurately that Colin Powell was at the UN telling the world that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. So that's real news, but it wasn't reality. Right. So I, so I bring in all these sort of variations on the theme of how what we're being fed is inaccurate by mistake, inaccurate on purpose. It's really an emotional reaction, not a fact. And so another example is, uh, I think it was December 31st, if I remember right. It was late December. Uh, all of a sudden, there's all this excitement. And the background on this is this whole thing that's been going on about trying to discredit Trump by saying he's best buddies with Putin. And so all this Russia investigation is basically all just throwing as much mud at the board as you can, hoping something sticks so we can discredit Trump and get rid of him. And so one of the things was, oh, the Russians have hacked into the power grid in Burlington, Vermont. This was reported in the mainstream media and leading Democratic politicians said, oh, here we are, Putin's a bad guy, Putin's friends with Trump, Trump's corrupt, and we're being attacked and our power grid is potentially going to be under the control of the Russians, just like our elections. Mm. Okay, big reactions, I counter-reactions, see, yes. commentators back and forth. Within a couple of days, we hear, oh, well, actually, the computer that was hacked wasn't part of the power grid computer system at all. It was just a private computer. Oh. And then within a couple more days, we hear, well, actually, the computer wasn't hacked. It was just somebody's personal computer that got a virus. And then the whole thing disappeared. So they, you know, they threw that piece of mud at the wall, had all these inflamed reactions. It didn't go anywhere. So they dropped that. Now we're on to Trump's a conspiracy nut because he thinks Obama hacked his uh, phones. Okay. So then we try and make Trump look horrible because he's saying that Obama hacked his phones. And the image that kind of gets implied is like Obama put on a pair of overalls, got a toolbox and walked into the Trump tower and, you know, Hacked into the phone system as if he, as if he personally did it. So That'd you make it sound so ridiculous that anybody who says that's totally ridiculous. But then lo and behold, where did this whole thing get started about hacking the Trump Tower? Well, it was an article in the New York Times. And lo and behold, the FBI had a bunch of these Russian guys under surveillance and one of them lived three floors below Trump's penthouse in Trump Towers and they were hacking conversations between these Russian guys and people working for Trump. So now, instead of it's just complete conspiracy theory out of nowhere, we've got the FBI saying, yes, we were hacking the phone system three floors below Trump's penthouse in Trump Tower and listening in to these Russian conversations. But simultaneously, that means we were listening to the other end of the conversation, which was people associated with Trump. So it goes from 
ridiculous conspiracy theory to, hey, wait a minute, we've, we're on the edge of it's a fact. It's certainly plausible. And then, then the big counter is, well, where's the evidence? Okay, so wait a minute here. There's no direct evidence that Obama himself or his people were involved in hacking Trump. But for this to be like a weighty argument, you, you, who, this is the Democrat side now, are implying that if in fact Obama had ordered wiretapping of Trump, his security apparatus would have been so leaky and his methodology would have been so lousy that he would have left a trace that we would have found in the public domain, which is absurd. The president's, you know, hacking capacity can't be that bad that he would leave all these footprints and somebody would be able to say, here's the evidence that if he hacked Trump. I mean, it's just the whole conversation is just absurd. And then a few months before that, we had public admission that the Trump administration had hacked the personal cell phone of the head of Germany, Angela Merkel. So we know they're hacking political leaders. So why would they be hacking Donald Trump? Right. So the whole conver- this is just the way the whole public conversation goes, whether you're on the right or the left or you're reacting this way or you're reacting that way. Yeah. What, what effect is this having though on society? I think it, it definitely is having a, a major impact. Just the way we uh, break well, people things can't down. think, criti- don't and can't think critically about issues. Weigh the evidence, have a conversation, be rational, accept that people have differing viewpoints, and you're not necessarily 100% evil if you disagree with me. But here's how we can work it out and negotiate it and weigh the evidence. And sometimes it's pretty complicated, and nobody's exactly got a total grasp of the truth here we just don't operate that way so yeah, our whole well, culture is off well that, that's what i call the deer in the headlights society that we currently live in most people don't do the homework and of course lots of folks out there are not rational or critical thinkers they're just basically repeating something someone said on television which is a big problem because the a huge the problem big huge problem, problem is it's just a setup for a fascist information control police state correct and, and see that's that, a big problem that leads to the other question who in the media can we actually trust who who has the non-political agenda yeah i don't know the answer to that <laughs> I, I don't think anyone truly does sir no. everyone has some sort of agenda up their sleeve or under their sleeve or whatever you could say it's right. just it's crazy we live in yeah, very strange and times. I, I think it's equally true of the left and the right. I don't think it's like a Republican problem or a Democrat it, problem. It, it really isn't. And I say this all the time in conversations with people on the left and the right. I, I say you could you could have had any president and we would have still had the same problems we have today. Um, a, yeah. a president is not going to fix the whole the whole the whole country and the whole world right. landscape of its issues. That's just it's ludicrous to even. A phantom such notion, in my opinion, the left and the right, in my opinion, sir, they're going to drive this country to the ground. Um, I agree. And I say that in the book and I make that point, exactly what you just said. You're a wise if, man. <laughs> yeah. If I agree with you, I have to be wise, right? <laughs> so let's look at things that were true all the way through the the Bush Clinton administration, Bush administration, Obama administration are true now and are still going to be true after Trump's four, two, four, eight years, however many years he does. Right. Well, look at the murder rate in the United States. Look at the suicide rate. Look, so walk through all of these social problems. They've been going on forever. Forever, yeah. 
and it's all going to be the same mess. Uh, where does the U.S. rank on just general happiness index compared to other countries? Where does it rank on health? Where does it rank on educational performance of high school students? Lousy. These things are not just going to change because Trump's in or Trump's out, because Obama's in or Obama's out. And so the, to me, this whole discourse, the conversation, is now the term that you hear all the time, the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's just become its own reality TV show. So the whole lead up from the primaries, the debates, the campaigning, the election, all the commentators, the whole thing is just a politics reality TV show, which is functioning at pretty similar level to the Housewives of Beverly Hills. Yeah, I call the more, it the, the political masquerade. Yeah. So the more ramped up it is, the more outrageous, the bigger the reaction, the bigger the counter reaction, the better the ratings. That's just the, what's happened to public discourse in our country. Yeah. It's, it's not a good thing. It really isn't. It's not a good thing. This is a, like I said, a very interesting time to be around in. And I'm going back to mainstream media and journalism. I just think that's completely over with now in, in today's era. Well, yeah, this is why I'm very much in favor of alternative media. So um, alternative media can be out to lunch as well, but we really need it. We cannot rely on mainstream media for clear, clean facts anymore. Yeah, everyone has some sort of agenda, and it's very surreal uh, to experience all of this stuff. Like I've mentioned time and time again here, it's all so fascinating, and it always makes me wonder, where is this all leading us towards? I, I truly don't know. Yeah, I'm sort of an optimistic, non-apocalyptic disaster guy, but it's a big concern. And like so in uh, maybe the Bush administration, say, you could feel the tone of the country and think, oh, we might slip over into a right-wing fascist state. And there's Negan, Ted Cruz or whoever, whoever you want to name. But now it's become apparent since Trump got elected especially and building up to that, the far left wing is just as nasty, just as polarized, just as vicious, just as rude as the right wing. And now maybe we could tip over into more of a left wing fascist state. And the, I know the, just from my reading, the CIA has a horseshoe model. Mm. And the two tips of the horseshoe are the extreme right and the extreme left. And they're closer to each other than the middle of the horseshoe at the top. So this is actually like their model of terrorism. Left-wing extremists and right-wing extremists are more similar to each other than either is to a halfway balanced mainstream person. And both pose the same level of threat. Yeah, the left and the right are basically the same thing, in my opinion. Play for the same team. <laughs> or no team, or, or whatever no team, team yeah. it is. Yeah, truly. And going back, of course, to... Mind control and the CIA going back to that, that, that brings me to the topic of the war on drugs. I thought we could quickly go over this and I wanted sure. your opinion on all these things. And of course, ironically, all of this was started by the CIA with the Iran Contra affair. Of course, we know about the poppy fields in Afghanistan. Of course, we know about the poppy fields in North Korea that most people out there don't want to talk about. I always thought that was really fascinating and kind of cute. The mainstream media hasn't exactly disclosed any of that out there with, with the masses. But, yes, tons of poppy fields out there in North Korea. Hmm. And it makes me wonder, who exactly is helping North Korea out? Who's really backing them? 
Well, I'm sure there's always the story behind the story behind the story, and we oh, just yes. get this kind of oh, yes. public public pablum version of it. Um, well, the war on drugs, so I'm interested in that because I'm a psychiatrist, right? And a of course, of course. M- MD physician, so I have noticed that there's some drug problems in our country. And it's it's an exact – this is not an opinion. This is a fact. The number of deaths from heroin overdoses has been overtaken in our country by the number of deaths from prescription narcotics. Exactly. So exactly. it's literally a fact that prescription – and this is not like uh, diverted drugs where people have bought huge supplies and sold them on the street. This is prescriptions written by doctors for their individual patients are for a fact – Killing more people in America per year than illegal heroin. That's a fact. Yes. So the war on drugs, uh, there's kind of three basic models of how to deal with the drug and alcohol problem. One is to see it as a military paramilitary problem, which is the war on drugs. We're going to attack the supply side, control them, which is obviously not working anyway. So you, it's basically a military paramilitary problem. Then there's, we'll look at it as a medical problem. We'll call this a disease. People have got this genetic brain disease that causes them to consume drugs and alcohol excessively and we'll do medical research and biological research and figure out a pill to treat it. And then the third approach is kind of the moral psychological model, which is it's either a character failing or whatever you want to call it. The approach is AA, go to church, psychotherapy, social help. So there's kind of the talk therapy, social help model, the biological disease model, the paramilitary model. But actually, the field of medicine is causing more trouble than it's solving. So if you wanted to fight the war on drugs, it's like you should be attacking the physicians. <laughs> so all this is so contradictory and paradoxical. But the, the huge problem is that we're focusing on the supply side as a government, so we got the DEA, we got all these government agencies. We're trying to capture the boats and the planes. Right. Which is not working. And the amount of resources we're putting into the demand side, which is treatment, social support, is so pathetically minimal. And there's an, Portugal's a nice example. I don't remember exactly all the, the, you know, the numbers, but Portugal, uh, and also I think some of the Scandinavian countries have instituted big social programs like uh, needle programs, methadone programs, etc. And they've significantly dropped HIV transmission and drug overdose. So what do we know when you fight the war on drugs and you define the people who do the sales as criminals and you define the people who consume as addicts or criminals and you put them in jail or you try and treat them medically, which is just a drop in the bucket anyway. We know what happens when you do prohibition. There used to be a guy named Al Capone who lived in Chicago, right? Right. So we know for a fact already that prohibition drives crime and violence, crime and violence, crime and violence. Now we have prohibition against these drugs. What do we have? Crime, violence, crime, violence, crime, violence. So when are we going to figure out that this approach doesn't work? Well, we're not going to figure it out if we're the people who are making a profit off of having all these people, a lot of them black people in prisons, off of futile attempts at treatment off of working in the criminal justice system as lawyers, prosecutors, judges. I mean, there's a whole industry, not to mention the DEA, that requires the war on drugs to maintain its cash flow. So there's all these built-in economic, social, ideological, political incentives not to solve the problem. 
surprise, surprise, it doesn't get solved. <laughs> yes. And by the way, I, I forgot the percentage of this, but I had read that most of these um, people that committed these mass shootings, they were all under prescription medication. Yeah, I haven't seen like a really thorough study, but it's a I high percentage. Yeah, I haven't exactly seen a, a real study for it myself either. Just but I've seen summaries of dozens yeah. of the mass shootings and like 80 plus percent are on some type of psych med antidepressant. So this is another thing that obviously I'm interested in as a psychiatrist because psychiatry prescribes all these drugs mm-hmm. and the majority are actually prescribed by family doctors, but psychiatrists are sort of the head of the team, so to speak. Yeah, these doctors are over-prescribing. Way over-prescribing. Yeah, they're, and they're, so they're trying to kill for, us. And I've written... Uh, quite a few papers on summarizing how psych meds really don't work very well. So how effective they are is over-exaggerated by psychiatry and the side effects are minimized. So the basic starting point is they are fairly toxic, they do cause withdrawal, and they really are not, at most, only a little bit better than placebo. They're not dramatically effective drugs. So that's fact number one. But if we look at the opinion of the official opinion of the government of the United States of America. This is the black box warning that's on antidepressants. So they analyzed all the data. I read papers about it in the American Journal of Psychiatry and was discussed back and forth. So the federal government, through the FDA, decided by analyzing very thoroughly all the existing data that, especially if you're below age 24, if you take an antidepressant, you're more likely to get suicidal, homicidal, or agitated than if you take placebo. Mm. So if you start off as a depressed person, you're treated with an antidepressant, you're more likely to get suicidal, homicidal, agitated, delirious. So this is the official position of the government based on analysis of the data. It's not my personal opinion. So, okay, so you take any drug, you take an antibiotic. Some people have an anaphylactic reaction and they die. One out of 60,000, one out of 100,000. Some people, you know, get an allergic rash. Some people get diarrhea. That's going to be more. That's going to be maybe a couple of percent, five percent. So we know that there's the bulk of people don't have any significant side effects to an antidepressant or whatever. Some people have mild side effects, and there's a tiny group who has catastrophic side effects. This is true everywhere in medicine. If you look at chemotherapy, everybody has bad side effects. Some people die from the chemotherapy. Correct. So, again, this is just mainstream medicine. So what do we know are the serious side effects of antidepressant medications, being suicidal, homicidal, agitated, delirious. Most people don't have those side effects. Some people have them, you know, kind of mildish, moderate. There's going to be a tiny little percentage of the population who has them to an extreme degree, guaranteed just based on how all other medicines in the entire field operate. Right. So it's it's Mm -hmm. virtually a guaranteed fact that there's going to be some people driven to suicide and homicide by the antidepressants. It has to be. But what do we get from psychiatry? Denial, denial, no way, no way, no way. Blame it on the person, blame it on their disease. They they should put that on the side effects of fire. uh, Basically, they they, they should put on the bottle there on the side effects that it's possible that you'll be shooting off a firearm as one of the side effects. Yeah, funny but not funny. It's not funny when it's it's a 12-year-old kid who sets themselves on fire. Oh, no, not at all. Because they got an antidepressant for a diagnosis of ADHD. Mm -hmm. These are stories that have actually happened. So, again, we've got the war on drugs. 
but we're prescribing all these drugs that are causing all these problems. Yeah. So the whole thing's way out of balance. And then you've got this massive multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry, which has really got psychiatry in its pocket. And the psychiatrists won't even admit to themselves that that's true. And you know it's true because every month I open the American Journal of Psychiatry and there's 5, 10, 15, 20 pages of full-color drug ads. The, the journal's financial survival depends on drug company money. Yeah, they got a pill for everything. Right. So, again, this is not a conspiracy theory. This, it's just a fact that if you look at the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, NAMI, which is a big, you know, we're nice people, we support the mentally ill, we want more research, a giant percentage of their funding comes directly from the drug companies. So the, the influence is everywhere. Yeah, it, there's it only, really There's only three countries in the world where you're allowed to do direct-to-consumer advertising on TV. All the other countries in the world don't allow pharmaceutical companies to push their product to the consumer on TV. That's a wise move. That's a very wise move. By the way, Attorney General Jeff Sessions actually was just talking about the whole war on drugs and how he wants to bring it back. Right. I, I don't know if that's a good idea. Well, I think it's a horrendous. No, this, this is not a political of driven not. opinion. These this are, is yeah. medical facts driven. It's a disaster. It doesn't work. It causes way more trouble than it solves. We got rid of prohibition, prohibition of alcohol a long time ago. And so when I was in medical school, I, I saw this. This is so back in the seventies. Marijuana this, marijuana that, heroin this, heroin that, horror, 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 horror. So, Obviously, smoking marijuana and having smoke go down into your lungs is not good for the health of your lungs. Of course right? not, no. Shooting heroin with dirty needles, not good for your health. Oh, that's really good for your health, sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not that all these different drugs like crystal meth is not good for your brain. That's Ooh, yeah, crystal by, clear. By the way, North Korea does have a big problem with meth as well. I'll bet they do, yeah. Big problem. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of these drugs are very toxic and harmful. So... But thrown into the the hopper there is marijuana. So then I noticed in medical school all these my professors having these huge attitudes towards marijuana. It's bad. It, it's a gateway drug. It leads to this. It leads to that. Mm-hmm. And completely tolerant of alcohol. Funny, right? Never say boo about alcohol. So what do we see when we're medical students and we go on the wards? We never talk to a single doctor who's seen a single case of marijuana toxicity in any form. Every medical student sees terminal alcoholic cases of people who are – I personally saw somebody vomiting a couple of quarts of blood into a container because of effects of alcohol. Yeah. I saw people in coma. I saw people die. So you see this horrible health effects of alcohol everywhere. We have 20, 21, 22,000 alcohol-related motor vehicle deaths per year. How much gun violence is – Fueled by alcohol, how many bar fights, how many broken bones, constantly, how much, how much domestic violence. We, we're in a tsunami of all of this. But oh, if you smoke four joints a day for 25 years, you might develop a motivational syndrome. So there's the amount of concern about marijuana is so far out of proportion to the medical scientific reality compared to the way minimized amount of concern about alcohol. So it's we have all these attitudes coming from the professors of medicine. It's just all very cattywampus. It really is. And Las Vegas actually just legalized marijuana not so long ago. Right. And you won't see the crime rate go up substantially 
guaranteed. Now, let's talk about alcohol versus marijuana really quickly here. Okay. Who would you rather be in a car with, someone who's drunk or someone who's high? Uh, someone who's sober would <laughs> be my first choice. Well, sure, but what if that wasn't the case? Well, it depends a little bit. But, I mean, basically, marijuana would be the first choice. I would have to say and if so. Somebody's like, but then you have to go, if somebody's just a little bit high on marijuana versus really wasted on alcohol, or what if somebody's just got a little buzz with alcohol but very wasted on marijuana, right? So in one scenario, the the person who's totally stoned on marijuana is going to be in worse shape than the person who's just had a little bit of alcohol. But overall, in general, alcohol's a bigger problem, I'd say. I'd have to agree with you on that one. I don't Not think to I mention would... prescription drugs, which are causing right. impaired driving all the time. Right, exactly. I, I just think some people out there who have developed some sort of strong tolerance towards marijuana actually become better drivers when they're high. Well, and then there's the whole CBD, THC thing, right? Of course, that's also so we, a factor. We have these, like from uh, the session side of the aisle, all the war on marijuana side of things that doesn't even differentiate CBD from THC. And so, but by the way, Doc, those people that we're talking about, they have no realization of, of those properties whatsoever. No, none. None. Totally uninformed. <laughs> of course. It's completely based on ignorance. So CBD looks like it's an amazingly helpful drug for all kinds of different things. THC gets you high. So, okay, why don't we separate off the THC, which we already have strains of marijuana that are very low THC, high CBD. Right. Why are we having... It's like having the same attitude towards penicillin and aspirin. It doesn't make any sense. It's not medically real. You know, I also make the whole argument with with coffee. Lots of folks are addicted to coffee, and they don't mm. even realize it. Yeah, lots. That's a powerful drug right there. Yeah, we. I was involved a little bit in research when I was in Canada. Uh, well, two things. You could either breathe uh, – you could get a CO2 cylinder from a supplier – and you'd give somebody a mask and they'd breathe uh, CO2, 35% CO2 air mixture. Mm-hmm. And if they have panic attacks, that'll make many people who have panic disorder have a panic attack, where somebody without panic disorder, nothing much happens. And the same thing, there's abundant evidence. If you give people a couple hundred milligrams of caffeine, if they have panic disorder, they're going to have a panic attack, high probability, whereas somebody without panic disorder – they're not so likely. And so there's clearly, there's a bell-shaped curve of susceptibility. And there's some people who are already on the sympathetic revved up side of things. You add caffeine to that person, it's like a double whammy. Oh, yes. And so there's there's definitely a for real caffeine addiction problem, just like nicotine. Both those substances are addictive. Yeah. And both are totally legal. And they'll definitely kill you in the end. Right. So I think that well, let's pull in guns for a second in case we don't have enough controversy. Oh, yes. So if you have X number of million people smoking a pack a day for 20 years in the United States, you're going to have this many cases of lung cancer. Right. You know, ballparkish. So it is guaranteed that if you have a tobacco industry and lots of smokers, you're going to have lots of cases of lung cancer, that would, not to mention bladder and other cancers, tongue, etc., that would not happen if there was no smoking. That's a medical fact. If you have this number of people drinking this amount of alcohol, you're going to have this number of people dying from drunk drivers. If you have this many guns on the street, you're going to have this many gun murders and gun suicides. It's all collateral damage. 
So if you are going to have these industries, you have to live with this amount of collateral damage, whether it's guns, alcohol, whatever it might be. Double-edged sword. Tobacco. So we have all this tolerance. Why don't we do the war on alcohol? Well, because the alcohol companies are making a lot of money and there's all kinds of people invested in it and there's all kinds of social attitudes about it and everybody likes to have a drink. Just like the oil company. Right. Why are we still using oil? Well, I, I can't complain too loud because I'm a frequent flyer. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. But I'm just saying, here we are in the in our current day and age, and we're still using oil. Kind of, kind of weird, in my opinion. But. The thing I think that bothers me the most about that is, so as somebody who drives a car and flies around in airplanes, my carbon footprint's not all that good. So I'm not self-righteous about it. Sure, but sure. To me, the really dumb part of it is, it's a finite resource, right? There's not. Two million more years of burning gas and oil at this rate. It's not going to happen. And these things are incredibly powerful, useful resources for plastics, for instance. So, I mean, we need this gas and oil in the future. We shouldn't be burning through it all. What are we going to do for plastics and all these other things we make out of hydrocarbons? It's just, it's like spending all your money in 24 hours and having no retirement. It's, it's dumb. That's true. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. And before we even get to pollution mm-hmm. or anything else. Yes. And moving along here, I'm looking at the time. I don't want to hold you up too long, but okay. there, there's a few other things I do want to get into here. And I, I've heard you talk about this sort of thing. I, I believe I've heard you talk about ritual abuse before. One of my books is called Satanic Ritual Abuse Principles of Treatment. Yeah. And, you know, I want to bring up a name to you, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Michael Aquino. Uh, who I'm are very you, aware of who are, he is. Yeah. Are you? I was going to say, are you familiar with him? Mm-hmm. Very. Yeah. I've interviewed Presidio and Temple of Set. Yes, that. I've interviewed him a, a few times before, and oh wow, oh that's cool. Yeah, I've talked to him twice, and you know, all the time I, anytime I, I, I mention that he's going to be on the program, it, it always goes back to Presidio and all the allegations, and even to this day, I'm not exactly sure I've seen any. Shred of evidence that would convict him of any of these horrific allegations in Michael Aquino's name. Maybe I haven't seen all the information, perhaps. I I mean, I like to see things from every side of the coin. Right. So the indisputable facts, which I assume he agrees with, are he was in military intelligence. Correct. He was naval, I think, right? Right. And he was head guy in the Temple of Set, which was a spinoff from the Church of Satan. So those are facts. And uh, there's a book by Linda Blood, I can't remember the title of the book now, that goes into the whole thing and describes kids describing the interior of uh, his apartment or apartment he used or something where they said right. they were richly abused in mm-hmm. great detail. And so there's, you know, various bits and pieces of not independently verified evidence. But I'll agree. I mean, he hasn't been convicted because there's no conviction level evidence. Right, and that's what I'm getting towards. I, I haven't seen any shred of evidence of any of these things, but yes, has, has there been satanic ritual abuse? I, I would have to agree there has been, and even to this day, there's still satanic ritual abuse. I'm sure we have things like uh, the whole Pizzagate incident and all that sort of thing, and we've seen people involved in the Vatican being arrested for their involvements in this sort of child sex ring sort of thing going on. So, yeah, these things are actually happening. Well, 
Yes and no. So what do we know for a fact? We know that there's organized pedophile rings. Right. And that they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of victims. We know that people in the Catholic Church and the Vatican have been charged, convicted, testimony from multiple victims, etc., etc. And we know that's not unique to the Catholic Church. Right. So there's all kinds of organized abuse being covered up. Obviously, there's an issue everywhere. Growth starts small. So then the question is, <coughs> okay, we've got all this multi-billion-dollar pornography industry. We've got the public domain part of the pornography industry, and then we've got like more secret and more secret and the dark web. And so we know there's pedophiles on huge scale, yeah, sharing and selling all kinds of incredibly depraved pornography. There's people convicted of having sexual interactions with babies. So why would we think, and there's all these porno films with, you know, people dressed as women dressed as nurses or teachers or cheerleaders or all this kind of stuff. It gets even worse than that, doctor, but yes. Well, that's just the, my goodness, the, the top of the stuff that you can get in the public domain. Oh yes. So what are the odds that a group of pedophiles has never gotten together and had a party where they've been doing satanic party stuff with satanic costumes because they get off on that. Just as a group of pedophiles, I mean, the odds that nobody's ever done that, basically zero. What do we know about uh, the Catholic Church? We know that in an organized, systematic way, over a period of hundreds of years, they executed hundreds of thousands of witches. Right. That's organized ritual abuse as far as I'm concerned. What do we know about Germany? I mean, they organized tortured and killed six million Jews, not to mention gypsies and other people. So what did E.D. Amin do? So we know the human race does this kind of stuff. It's not the least bit implausible that crazy satanic rituals with torture and so on would be going on. So there's no reason to say it's impossible. Right. But on the other hand, and there's lots of convictions of people kind of dabbling in Satanism up to the level of murder and teenagers and so on. But they're really... Where is the hardcore proof of very organized, you know, high-level people doing rituals, breeding babies, killing babies, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that, that's I, why I, I turned to Michael Aquino again. Right. Mm-hmm. He's way up there, yet we still haven't had any solid, tangible evidence yet. Right. So then, so I'm a psychiatrist, so I treat people with multiple personality, now called dissociative identity disorder, and a percentage of them described growing up in satanic cults. So the point of my book, which I published back in 95, is and back then the satanic ritual abuse controversy was like big. Yeah, it was huge for sure. And there's all these lawsuits and everything going on. Satanic panic. Right. And so then the whole fight in the culture was, is it real, not real? Do you believe or not believe? And what was left out of the discussion was, uh, okay, wait a minute. Well, these people are coming for treatment they're obviously highly disturbed, suicidal, and they're making these claims. How are we going to treat them? So there's no guidelines. There's no discussion in the literature of what you actually do to help these people. So the point of the book was, okay, we'll just set aside whether we believe or don't believe. So as a therapist, I stay neutral. I don't believe. I don't disbelieve. I don't do either. This is your reality. I'll work with you on your reality. In the end, you may figure out it was real. You may figure out half real and they figure out, oh, it was just internal fantasy. It doesn't matter. It's about getting to recovery. Not so depressed, not so suicidal, not having addiction problems, not having an eating disorder, not coming to the emergency room, 
not needing to be admitted to psych hospitals, not hearing voices yelling and screaming in your head, not having chunks of missing time where you don't even remember going out to the bar, getting drunk, and hooking up with some guy. All of that goes away because you've been successfully treated. That's my job as a psychiatrist, not deciding whether the cult's real or not real. Correct. So that was basically the purpose of the book in a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. And can can we still find that book, sir? Yep, it's on Amazon. It's published by University of Toronto Press, so it's mainstream. You can There's a bookstore on my website that has all my books listed, and there are, all those books are on Amazon as well. Very nice. I feel like I, I could talk to you for another hour here, but I, I definitely yeah, could. <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't want to hold you up here. Uh, I do want to thank you very, very much for being on the program, and we'll definitely have to do round two of this discussion. Okay, yeah, that'd yeah, be good. Yeah, I think we're just getting started here. Right. Well, I'll be happy to come back. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll do it again. Uh, it's been an honor and pleasure to finally speak to you, sir. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, and, and thanks for wandering through all these highways and byways. Oh. Yes, thank you, thank you, sir. I should be thanking you uh, sure. graciously, uh, gracefully here. And um, another thing, before you go, definitely plug your work and your website. And of course, I want to leave you with the final word. Well, the final word is: uh, it's wonderful to be alive, and there's a lot of wonderful things about this planet, and there's a lot of trouble in the human race. And in terms of my website, it's www. S-S-I-N-S-T dot com, which is short for the Ross Institute, <clears throat> or just search Colin A. Ross, MD. So thanks for listening. Very nice. Thanks for being on the program, and I'll touch base with you in the very near future, sir. Look forward to it. All right. Take care and stay safe out there. And that was my guest, Dr. Colin Ross. Great guest. Learned a lot here today. Always a great time. Always a great time. I do want to inform you that I will be coming back Saturday night. Oh, yes, that's this Saturday night with Robert David Steele. Same time, 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's 11 p.m. Eastern Time, live on the TuneIn Radio app. And, of course, let me remind you, if you missed any previous show, go back to michaeldeacon.com, and you'll find all those shows you might have missed. My name is Michael Deacon. Thank you for listening to today's program. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. I could tell that all the mainstream media outlets were giving me like a How appropriate. I wish I could be in that ring with Holden right now. It's crazy. I had no idea this shit existed before 726. I'm a TV real. A lot of good content. A lot of, a lot of cool topics. You know, I, yeah, I feel, you know, fortunate to have an opportunity to speak to you guys tonight. You guys are really busy. Yeah, Mr. Rusev, that son of a bitch. I, I like that, man. It's, it's the simplest shit. You go in there, you see the button, and you up the You don't see having your phone. I'm well rounded. Introducing the greatest tag team on the radio. Guess what, motherfucker?
Beasts. Flawless victory.